Hello and welcome to episode 94 of Locked On Canadians. We are your daily Montreal Canadiens podcast. We are part of the Locked On Podcast Network. And as always, I am one of your co-hosts. I am Scott Mattel, of course, and I am joined on this Wednesday evening after a, if I want to call it a game, I want to call it a mess of something on ice against the Bruins. I am joined by the active stick herself, Laura Saba. Laura, how are you? I am good despite the game. That makes one of us. That game was <laughs> infuriating on so many levels. And I know a lot of people are like, well, you know, they were going to be bad and the Bruins should have won anyways. But I'm like, my main point is it's the Bruins. There's like a handful of games every single year I want the Canadians to win against the Leafs, against the Bruins, and against the Senators. That is, that's literally it because those are the fan bases that are one, the most fun to troll and, you know, annoy. And they're also probably the three biggest rivals Montreal has. And the kind of effort in this game at first wasn't too bad, but then it became very clear very quickly where the gap in talents in this game was. And the Bruins, backed by a David Posternock hat trick, were just the better overall team. They have their system in place. They're rolling. They have their goaltending. They have their penalty killing. They have a healthy defense. Their forward lines are great. And any deficiencies they've had, they're managing to just, you know, kind of gloss over them with consistency. And Montreal, despite their best efforts, still cannot seem to find that this year. Montreal has none of the things you listed at the moment, which is very unfortunate. I guess the silver lining is this time they only gave up four goals instead of giving up eight goals. As Pete Blackburn tweeted, like, it was a really good effort from the Canadians. They gave up half as many goals as the time they lost 8-1 in a kind of tweet where I go, thanks, Pete, you jerk. And, uh, and the thing is, I don't think the team played badly. It was not a good game by any means for a number of reasons. This game probably could have been a blowout if it wasn't for Carey Price, who continues to just be incredible with no run support in front of him right now. And it's got to be so frustrating for guys on this team who, you know, are trying or at least doing whatever they think they can do. And then it's just not working. They're not getting that bounce. They're not getting that goal. Meanwhile, Carey Price is doing everything in his power to keep you in the game and you can't pay him back for that. I, this team's got to be so just frustrated with the way things have gone. There's a lot of competitive guys on this team, and Brendan Gallagher's one of them, and he had a night where you can tell he's very clearly annoyed about the way things are going right now, and I really don't blame him. I mean, I tweeted that he was trying to get killed by Zdeno Chara, and the way the game seemed to me as I was watching it was that the Canadians in their own uh, sorry, in the opponent zone, were very aggressive. Like you said, they weren't getting a bounce. I think, uh, according to Natural Stat Trick, they didn't really have any high-danger chances after the first period, but you could tell they were at least keeping the Bruins in the zone. They were hemming them in. They were able to... Uh, I, I guess like be aggressive. I don't want to say momentum because there wasn't really like, like there weren't shifts like that that I noticed. But as soon as the puck went over that line 
and went into neutral territory or into the Canadians' own zone, everything just seemed to fall completely apart. And not only that, like when I said when the Canadians were in their zone, they were aggressive and uh, like they were really heavy. Like I honestly, it looked like, like you said, you could see the effort on their faces, but you could see what they were doing. Like they were, they were good in that zone. The only problem is they got all these power plays, which they are pretty awful at. So as soon as they went, they, they went up on the man advantage, like the thing that I was talking about, they're like tight, aggressive, offensive play just disintegrated. It's the weirdest thing. It's so strange. And honestly, like I, I, I don't think the Canadians played badly in that game. Uh, you know, Pasternak obviously uh, is a threat, a major threat. And what kept happening was there were these breakdowns. And then all of a sudden you see like three Bruins heading towards Carey Price or, you know, the very first goal was extremely embarrassing. The second goal, I think it was Petrie and Tatar kind of like just lost whatever it was they were doing. And then they lost their man. And obviously Pasternak scored another goal. But truly, I just, I don't think that they, I, I think that they need to, one, figure out their, what they're going to do on defense because this is not going to fly. It's understandable that Shea Weber is not in, you know, he's not there, which means that, that their defense isn't going to be up to their regular standard. But that regular standard was so low to begin with that right now it's abysmal. It's just, it's, <laughs> It is amusingly bad, <laughs> I'm gonna say. But yeah, like I, like I think, you know, when you, when they are in their zone, it's just, you see, it feels like it's only gonna be a matter of time before they score, even though if you look a little bit closer, maybe they weren't in the right lanes or, you know, like, as we said, not, not a lot of high danger chances, but I just, I don't understand, like, what keeps happening. Like, things keep breaking down all over the ice otherwise. Tonight, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention this. We've talked a lot and praised Jeff Petrie a lot for obvious reasons this season. Tonight was probably one of those nights that he'd like to forget that every time it seemed like he made a mistake, David Pasternak put it in the back of the net. And he does that. He's a very good finisher. He's leading the goal-scoring race now after that game. And it's got to be so tough in that Petrie's played so well. And then the one game where things kind of fall off is in Boston where he gets torched for a hat trick because of it. Like, it's hard to not feel bad for him. But even more than that in this game, we look at what the Bruins did. They scored on their power play chances and won the game. Montreal's power play without Shea Weber as a weapon and I don't know if it's just without Shea Weber or if it's just that it's still, if it's really bad, and I know it's really bad, it's the worst since the new year, It's it feels like there's no threat from anything there. Even with Kovalchuk playing as well as he has, he's not the same thing. And, it, and then we look at the other side of things, in most games, their penalty kill's been very good, and it's this almost infuriating paradox where the Canadians can never have a good power play and a good penalty kill at the exact same time. Like, their penalty kill in that same time span from the beginning of the year is among the best in the NHL. They're almost up around 90%, which is incredible. Their power play is functioning at 9%, and probably even lower after tonight's game. And we're back to last year, where a non-functioning power play cost them their chance at the playoffs, among other things. And I just don't know what they can do to fix it. Bring in some new coaches. Yeah, I, I, 
And that's the worst part is that it's like we when they went on that first eight game losing streak, it's like okay, we got to fire the penalty killing coach, we got to fire the power play coach, and then both got better and they started winning games again, and we forgot about it. And now that they're losing close games or games where the power play or whatever could make a difference, it's so hard to just swallow that pill and go, yeah, maybe they should have, and we wouldn't be in this mess or something like that. But the big thing is this team is clearly missing Shea Weber on its back on its backside on the back end there and we're going to delve into his prognosis that officially was announced and some of the reports that have come out today and during the week that you know might have been a little bit irresponsible and we'll get into that in our next segment so it is week two of Webergate. Shea Weber is one fine by all accounts, the Canadians tweeted before the game against the Bruins, he'll be out four to six weeks with an ankle sprain. He flew out to Wisconsin. He got a consult from someone who did Ryan Suter's ankle surgery to make sure that it wasn't something more serious, that it wasn't related to his foot injury from before. And, well, I'm not sure how the sprain happened when it looked like it might have been off the shot block. Maybe it wasn't the shot block. We all just missed something which is entirely possible. We're all looking at the wrong thing. I kind of want to bring up a tweet that uh, came out earlier on Wednesday morning that sent this entire fan base, myself included, into a little bit of a spiral. And this comes from Nick Kiprios on Twitter. And he, and he says, Sources say Shea Weber's injury has his season likely over and his future in question. Told injuries related to foot that was surgically repaired in 2018 while waiting for swelling to alleviate and further confirmation, surgery seemed unavoidable going into this week at NHL hashtag Weber. All of that is some bull plop because the Canadians then head of communications and PR came out and said, we will be addressing this by the end of the week. We will have a statement, you know, coming out shortly. And then it came out that Shea Weber has an ankle sprain. He'll be out four to six weeks, which is... Most of the season, he might come back for a game or two at the end of the year, depending on how quickly he heals. But my biggest thing with this is now Nick Kiprios does not work for Sportsnet anymore. He is not part of their broadcasting team or anything anymore. To have an unnamed source tell you that his season and career is possibly in jeopardy before he's even met with this specialist and to get confirmation from the team itself or to even speak to any of these people is so highly irresponsible to me is that it's so bad that the Canadians who rarely address things like this had to have their director of communications or whatever his role is come out and make a statement on Twitter about it because it set everything in motion. Cause we were talking about cap recapture penalties. What's going to happen in Nashville? How are they going to long-term injury reserve this? It's misinformation, and it's highly unprofessional to put that out there without further confirmation. Uh, insiders like Bob McKenzie and Elliot Friedman mentioned that we don't have all the information yet. Here's what we know. He is possibly seeing a specialist. We're waiting for, they're waiting for, you know, some of the swelling to go down. We will have more as it goes, but the Canadians are keeping it close to the vest because that's what they do. One person coming out and saying their career is in question is so mind-blowing to me, and I can't believe that he thought this was a good idea to put this out here because now whoever your source is is wrong, and now you're the one who's going to have to answer for it. Like, I can't imagine the Canadians are very happy about seeing that out there. 
I mean, this whole thing is, it just, it got so overblown so quickly. And specifically, like, it, it wasn't, you know, people were talking about cap re- recapture, people were talking about Nashville, people were talking about, you know, Shea Weber's too proud to retire, he's gonna keep trying to go. And we were talking as if, like, the guy's career was dead. And, you know, at the same time, in my mind, I was like, who is going to replace him? Like, who's going to be the top D on this team? And, you know, I was looking at the prospect depth. I was, and then I just, you know, when the Canadians, it's not even like the part where the Canadians had to come out and be like, we'll be issuing a statement by the end of the week. Because I think that also made things a little bit even worse because they didn't say anything about, they didn't say he's about to meet a specialist right now. They didn't say we're still assessing. They didn't say we're getting a second opinion. They didn't even say if they had gotten a first opinion to begin with. It Like, I, I want to say, like, I, I a million percent agree that what Nick Kiprios did was irresponsible and unprofessional. But at the same time, I, I don't know if you saw this because it came out just before the game. Um, it was on The Athletic. It was Marc-Antoine Godet who wrote uh, an opinion piece saying maybe the Habs have learned their lesson because the way that they went about this just kept, like opened up more questions. And what his argument was what they should have done was they should have gone out and said, listen, he got injured against New Jersey. We're still not sure what the prognosis is. It is in his foot, or not even, they didn't have to say it was foot. They could say it's a lower, uh, it's a lower body injury. He is getting it checked out. However, we do not have the results of those tests yet. Like all they, like, they didn't even have to say how many doctors he'd seen already. Like basically all they had to do was that they didn't have a definitive answer and that they would tell us as soon as possible. So I'm kind of on both sides here. Like I understand why. Uh, teams and organizations want to keep injuries secret. I kind of get it, but at the same time, like eventually it's going to come out and when the player's back on the ice, people are going to know what it was anyway. What's the point, you know? So for me, I just, I feel like I, I, it's not that I, like I'm not blaming the Canadians. I'm just saying that they could have gone about it in a slightly better way. They could have found a better way to not give information. And the thing is, if Nip Kiprios wanted so badly to tweet that, oh, this injury might be worse than we speculated or whatever, he could have done the exact same thing that Bob McKenzie did, where Bob McKenzie yesterday, we talked about it on the podcast. He said, in my experience and opinion, if the news doesn't come out right away, it means that either it's really bad or they're not sure what's going on and they need more information. So he put both possibilities out there and that's what it, you know, that's what happened. It, it like, it turned out the Canadians needed more information. And the reason they needed more information is because that was the foot that Shea Weber had, was operated on. And so he wanted to go see that guy just to make sure to rule out the possibility that it was related. I think that he was just being, whether it's him or the team or both like in agreement, they were, they were being, uh, I guess they were practicing an abundance of caution, which is great for the long term, which is great for your health, which I wish more players would do. And so I just, you know, like, what is the point of doing that? Is it to get attention? Because after the Canadians or I, I want to say it was Darren Dreger that said that he's meeting with a specialist now. And then the Canadians came out and said, okay, injury announcement or report or whatever, health update, four to six weeks, it's an ankle sprain, everybody calm down, go home. 
Um, and he quote tweeted that and he said, I stand by what my sources told me. And I was just like, you're doubling down on something that has been proven to be wrong. And whether his sources were lying to him or he just made them up or maybe a legitimate source told him, listen, Shea Weber's nervous. He's getting a second opinion. He's going to see like the top doctor or whatever. He's worried it's not looking good. And then he took that and be like, oh, his like entire career is in question. You know what I mean? Like either his source like fed him some crap or he exaggerated for attention. Either way, it does not look good. And there is a reason that people like Bob McKenzie are considered uh, the insiders, the well-connected, the the trusted sources. And it's because Bob McKenzie doesn't do crap like that. If he wants to speculate, he offers it up in the context of saying, this is my opinion. This is what I've seen in the past in hockey. This is why I'm saying this. I'm bringing it up as a possibility. It doesn't look promising, but I'm not definitively saying anything because, again, I don't know. Here's the thing. Nick Kiprios played the game of hockey, and that does come with experience. And if he were to say, in my experience in the game, and I've seen X, Y, and Z, you know, given his history, this might be something that could be more serious, and that's why he's going for a second opinion, this or that. But he framed this entire thing as he his career is in jeopardy, not, you know, in my opinion or in my estimates or anything to cover his ass with this. He just said it as a fact and expected us to take it at that. And I know the Canadians are not have not been great and upfront with injuries. No team honestly is. It's very rare that you get an actual prognosis from the team. And I can understand, especially with this. I would rather they be cautious and get the thing right, not just say Shea Weber has, you know, lower body injury out this time. They told us what the injury was. They gave us the time frame for it. We know he visited specialists in Wisconsin and everything. We have the whole picture from them. Whether or not fans choose to believe that is up to their own, you know, their own prerogative at this point. They're allowed to do whatever they want, but I I just can't get over framing it and then doubling down on it, saying I stand by what my sources said. Your sources and you were wrong. Like, you were proven incorrect by multiple other people, including the Canadians. What are you trying to defend here? You should just say, I had the wrong information, and I was wrong, I misspoke, my apologies. But at the same time, because this is a a sport that's based around pride, being wrong means people trust you less. But are they going to trust you less if you admit that you were wrong? Or are you going to sit here stewing in the crap that you put out on Twitter anyways? Like, you cannot defend what was proven factually wrong by other people, including the team. It's indefensible and it's extremely unprofessional for someone who should know better. And I I can't get over that. The good news is four to six weeks for a sprain and then likely the offseason and everything to train and recover is the best case scenario for everything involved. And I think we can both agree that it's a good, it could be a lot worse. Like we all feared it could be a lot worse, but the fact that it seems to be something fairly simple that's, you know, can be handled in Montreal with their athletic training staff and everything is a good thing. And now it kind of allows Montreal to reshift their focus for the rest of this year And now with this game against the Bruins and Arizona in the bank and losing both of them, falling a little bit more out of that race, they're now at least seven points out, I believe. 
I think the focus now shifts back to the trade deadline. And with all those players who might potentially be up on the block going into the trade deadline, and we will touch on that in our final segment coming up. As we mentioned, Montreal is likely going into the deadline, selling off some of their tangible assets, I guess, because we know Thomas Tatar and Jeff Petrie are off the block. Max Domi is not for sale as of right now, according to at least the Pittsburgh Penguins, you know, front office. So that leaves a handful of maybe lesser options, players like Nate Thompson, who we know teams have been looking around, someone like Nick Cousins, maybe someone like Jordan Wheel, a Christian Foline, all these, and Dale Weiss, bit pieces that teams might be looking for to kind of give them a little extra depth and some experience going into the playoffs. And I'm kind of wondering now, should Montreal blow it all up this season now, or does do they kind of stay the course, sell off some of these expiring asset pieces, and refocus and just head into the draft? I think the most logical thing for them to do is to sell off those depth players. They are pretty, I guess, from whatever we're hearing from people who cover the team, they seem to have the attitude that injuries played a big part in derailing their season. I don't know if that is such a smart way to look at it because what happened was the injuries sort of shed light on glaring holes on the team. But I do think that when it comes to the trade deadline, they should, they should not be buyers by any means, but they should absolutely, if they can, try to offload, uh, like specifically the players you mentioned, like a wheel, a weesh, uh, uh, Nate Thompson, Nick Cousins, I uh, don't want him to stalk me on Twitter and be mean, but (laughs) I, you know, I don't think that Nick Cousins is in the long-term plans of this team. And and quite frankly, if you ship those guys out, you've already sort of, you've you've given up your, your position in the draft as much as possible by trying to make the playoffs in the first place. Like the all, like the likelihood is the Canadians are going to end up drafting in the mid teens, no matter what they do at this point. So given that, uh, it, and it, it depends on how Laval is doing, obviously, but if Laval also doesn't look like they're making the playoffs then call up some young guys to replace those guys that you shipped out just so that they'll get some experience and be ready going into next year. I don't think that there's a big problem with that. But at the same time, they might just do nothing because if nobody comes calling with a good enough offer, I feel like if somebody is just like, you know, seventh round pick for any of these guys, I would take them. Like the Canadians will have like the entirety of the seventh round in Montreal this summer. But I do think, and I think it's really, really important that going forward, the Canadians concentrate on making moves in the off season. I think that they don't just need to upgrade on the roster. I think that they need to upgrade in the coaching staff. And when I say that, I don't mean fire Claude Julian. That's not what I'm advocating at all. I think he is one of the best coaches that is out there. Like he's one of the best options that is available to the Habs right now or to any team. But As we talked about very, you know, at the top of the show, there are three things that have been alternating in terms of, like, whether they're good or not. I was going to say there are three things that have been consistently bad, but as you said, that's not true. Sometimes the power play is good and the penalty kill is bad. Sometimes the 
penalty kill is good and the power play is abysmal. And more often than not, defensive coverage is not good on this team. Those are three things that they need to work on. And I look at teams like, for example, Columbus. Columbus has really good defensive core because they've got talent and they've got a system that sort of has decided that it's going to concentrate on being a defensive system. And that's great for them. For Montreal, they want to be able to roll four lines. So they can't really play a game like that because, you know, it's, it's, it's just, it's not going to work out. So what they need to do is they need to make sure that they're mobile on defense. And the other thing they need to do is they absolutely need to be able to cover defensively like nobody knows where they should be nobody knows what they should be doing they're always losing their men they're always allowing these these crazy chances if not goals and so that's something that needs to be addressed like you don't just need fast players you need players that can think or you have to do the thinking for them so in in on this team right now they they don't have either like they they don't have the I don't know what a defensive version of Nick Suzuki would be but they don't have that they don't have people who can sort of quarterback the defense not just the power play and when Shea Weber is out it just looks it looks awful and Jeff Petrie god bless him like he he picks up on the slack he he's so un underrated still in this market I'm hoping that this year he's a little bit more rated but you know like they just they don't know what to do if those two players are not having a good game or not in the lineup the the rest of the team has no idea what to do back there and at some point you know Carey Price is going to be like I am so sick of seeing two to three opposing players coming right at me with nobody in the way and I think that's something that they need to focus on. And if that means that they need to fire all of their assistants, I'm all for it. Fire all of them. I don't care. Kirk Muller, bye. Like, I really don't. Well, I guess maybe not Dominic Ducharme. But still, like, I, I honestly, like, they need to shake things up. And it doesn't seem likely that they're going to fire the GM. If they don't fire the GM, it doesn't seem likely that he's going to fire the coach. Because he would probably only do that in order to save his own job. And so at this point, like, they need to put their feet down and be like, when I say they, I mean the owner and the GM, they need to put their, yeah, they need to, like, just be like, you got to, you got to switch all things, everything out, everything out. You need to improve on the power play. You need to improve on the penalty kill. You need to be able to have, put up a defense at all. And honestly, like, I, I just remember very early on in the season when the Canadians were giving up goal, uh, giving up points to teams that were inferior. Arpan Basu was writing an article, and in there he he specifically mentioned the transition game that used to be the Canadians' bread and butter. Where has that gone? I haven't seen it all year. I haven't seen it. Like there have been a handful of games where they've played really well, and then the rest of the time, like literally nobody knows where they're supposed to be or where they're supposed to go. So I am very tired of this, and they need to work on, I guess, specific areas, maybe overall strategy. Overall, coaching is fine, but they really, really need to work on that stuff. And if it doesn't work out, then fire Claude Julian too. Bye. I think my biggest thing is I look at going into this offseason, they need transition players from the back end. They have Petrie and Kulak who play on the same pairing. Victor Mete has struggled. Kale Fleury is down in the AHL now. Shea Weber is not a breakout player. Ben Sherrod is not a breakout player. They are the ones who are following the play as the last man back. Um, Christian Foline is not a breakout player. Marco Scandella is not a breakout player. 
Xavier Ouellette is in the AHL. I haven't gotten enough look at him at the NHL level this year to make a proclamation on that. But everything starts from the back end. And when you keep taking these pieces out, whether it be because they're sick or they're hurt or they're not in the lineup or this and that, the whole thing kind of suffers. And, yes, they got the forward core healthy just in time for the defensive core to get, you know, hit around the kneecaps with a crowbar, basically. And now it's the big focus is when that original thing went out and we were worried about how long is Shea Weber going to be out, my first thought was they need to throw a million, like a million, they need to throw a billion dollars at Alex Petrangelo this offseason and have him come to Montreal. And now that that's not the case, they need to get someone else. I know we say this a ton, whether it's trades or what, they need to get someone on the left side on that top pairing to help generate breakouts with the puck on their stick. They need to help. They need help getting in the offensive zone, getting guys who are going to enter that zone with speed and put defenders on their heels. We see that's kind of what makes Nick Suzuki and Arturi Lekin and what made Max Domi last year so successful is they would fly through the neutral zone and they'd back teams up and it gave them the center of the ice to operate in. The Canadians had one high danger scoring chance against the Bruins after the first period. That's not good enough for a team with this kind of talent. And you want to know why? There was no speed going into attack. They, you know, slowly trudge in, chip the puck in and try and do it. And the Bruins just shut it down. They need to rethink the dynamics on some of these lines and figure out who meshes with who. Who are we going to start in the offensive zone so they don't have to carry the puck in? Who is great at getting the puck there? And who is good at, you know, getting the puck out of the defensive zone and up? It's going to be very interesting to see, obviously, what this team does going forward because they're in a no-man's land uh, right now. And, Laura, what's their current draft position as of right now? Do you know I looked this up <laughs> and now I lost it. Uh, I'm so sorry. I'm so, so, so sorry. Because I looked at Tankathon on my phone during one of the segments, and I don't know if it includes tonight yet. But it has Montreal is sitting ninth without, you know, running the draft lottery simulator, which slightly better than last year. But, you know, we're still sitting just outside that edge of, like, elite talent. And it'll be very interesting to see kind of what they opt to do if they try and sell off and, you know, lower themselves even. They're not catching Detroit. Let's make that very clear. They're not catching Detroit or Ottawa, who has two picks in the top. You know, in the lottery this year. Thanks, San Jose. Um, so Sorry, I, I, it is ninth. <laughs> it is ninth. It's so they're aiming for that top five, potentially. I don't know if they're going to get there. I think Carey Price plays too well for that, but I guess we'll see. We will be back tomorrow. It is our mailbag episode, and we will have a guest for part of the show as well. So please, please tweet us your questions at LO underscore Canadians. You can email us at LockdownCanadians at gmail.com. You can find Laura at The Active Stick on Twitter. You can find me at Scott Matla. And as always, thank you so much for listening.